thank you for that reading, Emily. That uh, There's two parts in the book of Matthew, one in the Sermon on the Mount and one right there, where Jesus compares our worth to sparrows. And he, he often says that you're worth more than many sparrows to the Father. One of the things that I, I wanted to talk about as we walk through this discipline of being with the least of these is this idea that, that Judaism and Christianity care within them is they change the idea of what humans are worth. They inject meaning in life into everyone. They start to see worth in every person and every sort of scene. And so in the news this week, I don't know if, if anybody's following this. I hardly know a lot about it at all. There's that child in England. Uh, his name is Alfie. Is that right? Um, and, and Alfie, in England, they're dealing with, you know, how do we treat this and where do we treat him and, and all these questions of, of ethics of life, too, because he's not doing well. And yet the Pope is responding that, that they need to do something and allow this to happen because within the Catholic Church, there's this doctrine of the seamless garment of life. The idea that all of life is made up of the seamless garment. And so, and so in some ways, they look at that in the womb, and, and some Catholics, many Catholics today, stretch it all the way to the tomb, that, that God has a sacredness for each human life. And so this stretches from, from um, uh, their, their, their position on being pro-life to their modern sort of position on being more anti-war as well. Is this, this, this idea that all of life has this garment. And in the moments in which in the modern world in which we try to puncture it, whether that be in asking whether we should give Alfie the surgery because of cost or whether we um, allow euthanasia in the modern world, which is not quite a big thing here, but if you, if you read about like Belgium, it's a big practice there. Whether we allow these things is a very difficult question, but the Catholic Church is saying, you know, we're trying to preserve the sacred garment of life. And that's sort of what comes with being with the least of these, seeing all of life connected in this way, not asking questions of what is this person worth? I mean, I don't think Jesus is asking us to figure out how many sparrows would you say Merle is worth compared to Lisa? Well, it's obviously 20 and 22. Um, uh, I don't think he's asking that. What he's telling us is that the Father has care for each of us. Now, that's a, that's a lot about the Catholic Church, but one of the things that we say in Why We're Defiance, I think it's in number two, is that we try to be a people who stand for life and a people in a world that's bent on death. And that comes from this idea that, that this modern world has this culture that's bent towards death in so many ways. Whether it be war, video games, the way we disregard human life and human um, things, the environment, there's so many ways in which our world just sort of arches towards death. We don't think it's quite obvious that it should turn back to life, which is why we call that a defiance task. Is that to see with Matthew and Jesus and to follow that, to be with the least of these, is to see that it may not seem obvious. The equations don't always work out, right? That if we do this surgery for this one kid, then all of these other things have to follow. But we don't know how to be anything other than for life in the midst of that for people, for humanity's dignity. And so that's sort of where we start with today, is what does it mean to move sort of in this culture of life? But one of the phrases I just want to focus on before we get too far in is this with, right? In the book that we're, we're walking through, he starts this chapter by saying, the world operates by people doing things for people. 
and two people and then making them into projects. This is an overstatement, I'm sure, but it speaks to the way American society organizes whole systems to employ power efficiently to get things done at a price. Corporations hire consultants to solve problems by recommending strategies to be implemented by managers. Money flows to, to those who put solutions into motion. People are employed by managers to do things for the right price. It's talking about the larger world in which we do, where we are for things. How are we gonna, how are we gonna be for this? How are we gonna do for that? And what the, the phrase that we sort of wanna function with in this series is with. Now there's this thing as a pastor is that I always think we miss the controversial. And as much as I try to bring it out, it always fails. It's hard to bring out what's controversial in these little shifts. But we think often about how do we be for the poor. But it's not hard to go from thinking about how do we be for the poor to being how can we fix the poor? How can we fix those who are homeless? How can we fix that those who live in the, in the least of these positions. And it's not then not a far leap into which we go towards making them projects. Now, in my modern sort of naivete, the first time as an adult I went and volunteered at the soup kitchen was in Seattle. It was part of this church, and it's called God's Little Acre. And this place almost literally had no rules, and that terrified me. Because what happened was I had done growing up as part of my youth group is the standard sort of, I'm on this side of the counter, all the stuff we've cooked, prepared, and made is behind me. People come in, I give them some mashed potatoes, they go and sit by themselves, and that's sort of what we do. And so, and then when they're all served, we turn around, and we go about sort of cleaning the kitchen and making things all better, and doing all this, and then they eat and leave. Very little interaction. Right? And that was me. So when I went to go volunteer at this ministry, I was like, I'm going to go before the poor. I'm going to go before them. And I walk in, and I'm, there's like a table set out in the kitchen, and yet all the people are in the kitchen cooking their own food, making their own things. Some guy brings literally a whole turkey and puts it in the oven to roast, which I was like, that is uh, going to take a while, I think. <laughs> One, um, <laughs> That ever, this one guy's cooking steak in a skillet for me. Um, and so I asked the guy, Jonathan, who runs it, I was just really concerned about where I put my jacket. I was like, there are all sorts of homeless people everywhere. This is a pretty nice coat, so I would prefer it not get stolen, right? Um, and so he was like, oh, I don't know, just go put it in this closet here. And I was like, okay, so I put it in the closet there. And I spent the whole sort of time, and this is, you know, uh, more confession than anything, sort of standing in the corner, just sort of like terrified on like, how's this work? There are so many knives out. Um, <laughs> and they're like cutting their own vegetables and stuff like that. How long before one of them turns on me for being something evil, which I'm, I don't know why I'm evil at this case, but I, I just lived in fear the whole time I was there. And so I kept going back, learning the patterns of this place, and slowly having that sort of stance of fear leave me as I did that. But it wasn't easy. I was used to sort of like, I'll stand here, I'll give them food, and they'll go on. But I began to learn to be with them in a different way. I wasn't just for them in that, you guys must be hungry, here's some food I've decided you're going to eat. 
but I found out what they like to eat and how they like to cook. I learned to fry an egg better than I ever had before because one guy fried eggs. And so I started going to the mornings with them too. And they would do a Bible study and they would point out the most interesting things in the scriptures. One of my favorite, and if you've been in a small group with me, you might have heard me say this, is this guy Nico, who um, he used to tell Kelly he came from royalty back in what country? Nicaragua or something like that. Uh, Nico would, would say to me, he'd say, Matthew, Pastor Matthew, why? Why did Jesus walk everywhere? Well, you know, I got a good answer. No cars, one Nico. Uh, two, you know, horses were expensive, so were donkeys and this and that. He goes, no, Jesus walked everywhere so he could be with and among the people. And that caused me to stop and rethink what I knew about Scripture and things. This is being with and having them bring out insights to me. And so we would do that in the mornings. And by the time I leave there, this is about two and a half years later, I'm breaking up fights um, with, with little fear because I'm like, they don't want to mess with me. They know that's the worst of their problems. Uh, so if I get in between two men who are upset about normally laundry, we had laundry machines that they could use and do their laundry, and they would fight over who signed up for what time. But if I got between them, that would normally de-escalate the conflict because there's big consequences if you hit the guy who's there sober in this. Um, but, but I moved from that stance of fear to being with them, to understand who they are and where they are in the world in a way that didn't just mean I was going to fix them. It meant that I was going to be a friend to them. And what happened in that change was a slow realization of like, how do I get people away from homelessness? How do I get people back off the streets? So how do I provide and meet with them today? Because here's one of the big problems is, and I noticed this later in life, is that a lot of people, myself included, show up to these things thinking, how can I be a savior here? Even for one person. What are going to be my one signs of hope and victory that this has been a successful time? That this hasn't been a complete waste? And what happens is, is that those things come very few and not as often as you would think. And so lots of people would make it a month and then never come back. And when I talked to them, they'd be like, I just didn't feel like I was making a difference. I didn't feel like I was changing anything. And it, it was hard not to point out of like, well, who do you think in your life that you could hang out with for four hours or for two hours, four times, and make a significant difference in their lives. I mean, most of us, we, we would be suspicious of anybody who was like, can I come alongside you for two hours every week, except for when I'm on vacation, um, and, and make some drastic difference to improve your life. And so it was helpful for me to start help people realizing before we even got to that point on that this is hard work, but it is good work. This movement towards being with rather than for and trying to solve all their problems actually becomes more fulfilling in the end because what you gain is not a project, which is what the author of the book is talking about. What you gain in the sense in the end is a friend, somebody who cares for you, somebody who also likes you, somebody who's opening to your insights. Somebody who also provides you with insights and lessons to learn as well. 
And so I think one of the big shifts, in, and this is hard, is how do we move from being for to with? And because this is the way I maybe not unraveling about it, it should be controversial, right? Because what we want to do with the most effective management of our resources is solve people's problems so that they're no longer stuck in these patterns. We want to fix people. But what does it mean if Christians are the people who say, that's maybe not the goal at the moment? Our goal is to be among and to be with and to learn and to make friends and to share this together. Jesus says this in one of the passages where he's talking about what his life has come today. He said that, that the Gentiles, they lord power over each other, but it will not be so among you. I also think that's one of the most controversial statements in the Bible. And he says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And he sets that pattern up for our lives as well. That change, I think, and, and so what I think happens when we try to help people sometimes is we want our egos lifted up by helping them, right? That's getting us served because we're together and we know what we're doing. And so we go and be with them. And so that's what I wanted to say about being with the least of these, but that should shape sort of where the rest of the sermon is going. The other thing that I think is, and I love this image of, of this person sitting with somebody who's dying, is, is sort of what it is talking about. All of us, this is talking about the least just for a moment, all of us will end up as one of the least of these at some point, most likely. All of us will faith, face death, in which what we've accumulated in life, what we've gathered around us to give us comfort, all of that will become less and less important. All of us will need somebody to be with us at some point. And if you don't want to think about it as death, it's probably happened to you at other points in your life as well. In which everything else you had either failed or wasn't there, or this well-ordered life that you had put together, it falls apart and you need somebody just to be with you. See, somebody who's more professional, I'm like, oh yeah, those are fragile moments that only happen like once or twice. There are people who live like this all the time. It's like, well, to some degree, yes, but to another degree, it doesn't really matter. We all, if we can see our lives correctly, see how much we're contingent upon other people. And not only that, how close we are to brokenness and woundedness and loneliness. And so one of the things that you learn as you talk to more and more people at risk, homeless people or people stuck in cycles of poverty, is how their net was much thinner than ours. Maybe not everybody's here, but certainly mine is that like, if my life were certainly starting to unravel, and at times it has, I have lots of things I could cast off to to repair my life. The extent to which my parents would finally cut me off, I think is so far down the hole, it would take a long time to find out when that would happen. I've got a lot I continually can, can pull on. I've got two congregations made up of people that I could call, and they'd probably provide me some help. But what you find among people who are really down at the bottom sort of ends of their life in so many different ways is that their, their connections have run out. And they often didn't start with as many connections as I have. 
So if you have a father who lives in cycles of abuse, he's not that helpful when you hit bottom as well. And so what you begin to do is also understand your life in this way, that there are so many ways in which people are with you, even though that you're not the least, that keep you from falling to that point. There are so many patterns and cycles that we've learned in our lives that keep us up and afloat. And so you find that what really is needed when you sit with these people is relationship. And so our last town dealt with a high extent of, of rural poverty where Kelly and I lived. And the school district brought this woman in to give, and she herself had grown up in generational poverty in Michigan. And she talked about the ways in which she was able to lift herself out of that. At, I think at 20, she couldn't even read. was through relying on multiple uh, tons and tons of relationships making those relationships and then relying on them and finding out that people didn't fail and that people didn't always leave you to hang. But then she was able to lift herself up. And what she was telling us as a community we needed to do was build a well of relationships that people who aren't in our cycles or circles can call and then be lifted up in. Because lots of people don't didn't have the same access to problems that, that I did. And so I volunteered to be one of these people. And the first call I get is about a person whose apartment is infested with, with bed bugs and other things. And so another person who signs up on the list is actually a lawyer who deals with housing crisis. It's not hard for me to figure that out and have access to that. And so what I do is I put them in touch, and what it turns out is as a landlord, you can't make people live in conditions like that and collect their rent. And so through that connection of just calling me, who I call one other person, we were able to make some sort of difference, but it then meant me meeting with that person, and talking with them, and sharing life. We had this thing at our last church where we would bring quarters and detergent to a laundromat and just do the laundry for anybody who showed up. And so that time became two or three hours with them every week where we would sit and talk about, okay, so we fixed your housing thing. What's next? Well, how can I be with you in something else? So we started to eat together at the soup kitchen in town. We started to spend time and relationship together in other ways. And just slowly through learning her story, being open to what she had to offer me too. When, when Roosevelt was born, many of these people brought us gifts as well. Receiving gifts back, we were able to find ourselves in a, in a much better cycle of life than we were before. And so Matthew 25 has this story about the sheep and the goats, which is passage of being with the least of these comes from. If you're not familiar with it, it's in Matthew uh, 25, 31 through 46. But there's this phrase that they both answer back to him. It says that these people are brought before the shepherd and he's separating the sheep from the goats. And he calls the first to them and he says, come to me for you are blessed. And they say, Lord, when... Did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothing? When did we see you in, in, in sick or in prison and go or visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of one of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he speaks to the goats and he says, depart from me. For you did not do those things. And they say, Lord, when did we see you that way as well? And he says, truly, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. 
There's this awareness here. We've been talking about presence in this series that, that Christ's presence is found intimately amongst what we would consider the least of these. You notice the things that the, that the sheep do are just sort of like provide a place to stay for the night, offer food, visit somebody in prison. No solving world problems here. They're meeting momentary concerns. It's not a big thing. It's just sort of doing that. But the best part about this, I think, and the most challenging part is both groups say, when did we see you that way? One of the hard parts about preaching this text or this series is it becomes, okay, so on Tuesdays, we're all going down to this place and you should all come. It becomes sort of this forced thing that we all sort of like then have to do one more project, project again, in our lives to sort of meet this thing. But what, but what this parable talks about is two groups of people who didn't have a clue that they were helping Jesus in the least of these. So what I think it, it speaks to is that once you get to know who Jesus is and watch the patterns of life that he lived in practice, you find yourself invited into just doing these things. If, if you're ever cooking garlic, there are people, my, my wife and my mother, uh, which is weird now that I said that out loud, um, are both this way, is they'll be like, that garlic is overcooked. I'm like, well, I'm waiting for the color. Like, right, black is overcooked, white is still not cooked. So I'm, uh, it doesn't look overcooked to me. And they're like, no, you can just tell by the smell that this is overcooked. What I think that Jesus, through this parable, is inviting us into is being a people who just sort of know these things. And so there's, I don't like giving you projects or making life into a project for you or Christianity and project to you. And so there might be some social dislocation required for this today though, to actually do this. Because I've noticed this in my own life is that you can spend your whole day or your whole week and if you're if you work alone, like as a pastor during the week, like I do, you can quickly spend your whole time not interacting with somebody you never chose to interact with. And as soon as we can get our groceries delivered by Amazon and other things, it'll be even more likely that you can spend your whole day and your whole week very rarely ever interacting with somebody you didn't actually just choose to have an interaction with. And so one of the things that we've talked about often is how do we open our eyes and awaken to what's around us? You walk into the grocery store, and it may not require a lot of social location. It might just require a shift in how you go to the places you already go. Does it mean to walk into the grocery store and see people there? You know, Kelly's dad has this way and this habit of noticing when people are struggling to pay for some reason, and he just buys their groceries for them. That there's these ways in which we can awaken ourselves to the places we already are. Um, I used to be sitting with a friend at Starbucks this past year, and some guy had come in pretty, what looks like, beaten up. And everybody's just looking at him like, look, that is unfortunate. And this friend I have, being, and doesn't even think much about it, I can tell, just asks him, what happened? Is there something we can do for you? Do you need something? Like, can I get you some water? Right? I was, I was there with the rest of the people, and I was like, okay, well, somebody had a rough night. Um, uh, I'd like to think of myself as being better than this sometimes, but I was just like staring as everybody else was. And it takes one person to be aware enough to say, people are hurting. Nobody really outlashes at you if you just ask a simple question. Are you okay? 
I'm going to sit with you. I'm going to be with you. There's this, there's this ways in which we can sort of become awake to these realities that already surround us, that we can move in different patterns in lives. And through this, we can begin to sort of see what it means to be with people in a different way, because this, in many ways, is a small town. I guarantee that if you stop and sit with somebody once, it won't be the last time you see them. You'll run into them again, and hopefully that can build a different relationship. Now, this was this was um, this is part of the challenge I think of being with the least of these. There's one story I want to read, and then we'll we'll talk the three circles. Everybody's favorite. The first circle is uh, Acts two. Acts two is what Kelly read for us this morning, which is this passage about that the believers held everything in common that they supported with none another. You'll see this in Israel's writings. You'll see this throughout the New Testament, is that the church and, and the community of faith is supposed to be one that cares for one another and knows each other's concerns. This is why mega churches spend so much time trying to get people into small groups, because they know this is true. Like, if you can come to church and not know anyone and not interact with somebody, they know that's like half church. So they spend a lot of time trying to get you into smaller groups of people so that that can happen. Luckily at our church, or unluckily, take it how you will, at our church that we get to know you is one of, I think, the things that um, people like and also is awkward about our communities, that when people come in, we want to know about you. We want to know your story. We want to know who you are. And so that happens here, but whether you're part of a big church or a small church, part of it is breaking down your life into getting to know the people near you so that as a church you can meet and provide for those needs. That's sort of where Jesus is the host, and this happens in the first circle. And the second circle is where we sort of do these projects together. At our last church, and sorry, I, uh, one of the struggles I knew was going to be with this series is, is that I think of examples, and unlike like most people, your examples come from your own life. And so this is not an attempt. And I didn't organize this one. Most of my examples are probably making me look worse than they are making me look better anyways. So I guess that's not a problem. But uh, we would, we would uh, routinely visit, uh, the church had this practice of sitting people as they were dying and, and arranging hymn sings to go there, to be with the family and to be with the community that also was gathering when this person's dying and just singing hymns at that time and at that moment. We moved outside the walls of the congregation. We moved out into the world. And we kind of went as hosts ourselves. We brought the hymn books. We brought somebody who could play the piano. And we would sing hymns to these people that they had known their whole lives, some people who didn't, and just provide for them this place of, of hearing something good again, of hearing some good news while they passed away. You could think of lots of different ways in which the church moves outside its walls to sort of be with well, that's not true. We can think of lots of ways in which the church moves outside the slot to be for people and to start a new program. But I think one of the challenges for our church is, is to take our lives and what we do for each other here and push that out into the walls and the community as a group, as a together thing. To do it, not just feel like it's just me alone helping this person, but that I can invite Lisa or Merle or Matt or Jonathan. I can invite somebody else into this moment with me. And not only that, to be awake to it together when we go out to eat or gather outside these walls. 
And then the last circle, the open circle, the way I like to think of it is the one that sort of comes from the other circles and presses an imprint into our lives is just sort of the ways we could be awake to this in our daily lives. We can be with people in a different way because of what Jesus has done for us. Philippians 2 says that, that Jesus, the one who was with God, gave up all that and emptied himself. There's a great passage about Jesus, but we often forget that it begins with that this is the mind you are supposed to have and with you. The mind we're supposed to have in ourselves is like the one who had access to everything and yet emptied himself of that, becoming the point of a slave. And through that movement downward, it begins a movement upward in that life. You begin to learn about different things and a different way of being. And so the last thing I want to end with today is from the back of, of the bulletin. You'll see this story of John Vanier, or you'll see a quote from John Vanier. John Vanier, if you're not familiar with him, or if you're familiar with Henry Nouwen, actually is another one. Henry Nouwen spends the last half portion of his life serving in a La Arc community, which is what John Vanier started. John Vanier gets a PhD in Aristotelian ethics, which does not sound like somebody who would spend a lot of time with the least of these. But he says he comes and visits his friend, who was his PhD mentor, who had become um, chaplain at an institution for the mentally disabled. And he says, I discovered this world, people locked up in institutions, parents feeling ashamed and pain. An institution near Paris where he saw 80 men locked in a building meant for 40. Violence and abuse were rampant. Even elsewhere, he saw a teenager changed in a garage. Now, Meunier was, was moving into the world of what, how people handled people with mental disabilities around the late 50s, early 60s. He said, what do you do when you see something like that, said Mr. Vanier. His answer was to purchase a small house and invite two disabled men, Raphael Semey and Philippe Sue, to live in an institution near Paris and live with him as friends. Raphael only knew 20 words and didn't speak very much, whereas Philippe, Philippe spoke too much, Mr. Vanier says with a smile. The great thing about people with intellectual disabilities is that they're, they're not people who discuss philosophy. What they want is fun and laughter and to do things together and to fool around. And laughter is the heart of community. And so he moved in with these two men. And what he quickly discovered is that, that his life was being fed as much by living with these two men as, as their lives were being provided for by him. And so what happens is these the art communities, there's I think over 200 in the world today, and they live together with community members, and all their community members are the people with, with disability. And the community members they live together with, I had the privilege of going to a Taze service up in Portland at one of their communities. And you would see people who were, who were more cognizant of what were going on, and you would see people who would just sort of laugh and sort of make scream-like noises. But what they, you found is that this place here feels holy feels holy in a way that, that a big worship place full of 2,000 people with a, a good band doesn't quite feel holy. Singing Taze songs, which are just very repetitive, this holiness started, started to invade this place. There's only 20 of us there in that room. 
that began to sort of open up new, new pathways for me to see my own life. But the quote on the back of the bulletin says, but what about those who can't take off years to serve? Try and find somebody who is lonely, Mr. Vanier says. And when you go to see them, they will see you as the Messiah. Go and visit the little old lady who has no friends or no family. Bring her flowers. People say, but that's nothing. It is nothing, but it's also everything. He adds, it always begins with small things. It all began in Bethlehem. That was pretty small. Let us pray.